T2 was my first R-rated movie in the theater. Hmm. I was six years old and we saw it and I was in it blew my mind and when we walked out my dad was like oh well you have to see the first one and my mom said oh yeah show him the first one and then when we watched the first one linda hamilton takes her shirt off and my mom got really mad at my dad that's what i remember (laughs) my first time seeing these these movies it was none of the violence in t2 none of the violence in terminator one it was wasn't any children being melted in terminator (laughs) 2 that that didn't bother your mom no it was this it was the sex like to try to kill one of these things now his mission get down is to protect it come with me if you want to live you're really real his loyalty is to a child who sent you you did 35 years from now and his enemy he's a terminator like you right not like me is the deadliest machine ever built can it be destroyed unknown this time there are two terminator 2 you just can't go around killing i feel like rewatching t2 in preparation for this podcast there were moments when i was like okay yeah T2, uh, Wayne's World 2, maybe in some ways uh, <laughs> Batman Returns, just like movies movies that sort of uh, reintroduce the concepts from the original, but on a much grander scale or platform. What's that about? Well, like, the evil, like the Evil Dead movie, I, I think, too. Oh, absolutely. Like, Perfect. I think T- T- Terminator 1 always, to me always feels like a like almost like a canon movie in the sense that it's like a slasher film and it 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 satisfies all the needs for what a a slasher film kind of does but it adds this kind of the 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 cameron sci-fi storyline to it um but it it still plays kind of like a grimy early 80s slasher movie well like while being the biggest director of all time he was also very proud of the fact that he had like a screenwriter credit on piranha 4 or whatever you know what i mean like (laughs) like 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 t1 he always like sort of passed it off as this like fever dream like oh i was recovering from surgery and i had this vision of a a titanium man uh, assaulting me you know like no i was just saying then there's the story that he told recently in that that ringer oral history where he said that he wrote or was doing a lot of notes for T2 while he was rolling, which is, and listening to Sting. I love, and apparently that's where the whole concept of having the Edward Furlong character, the son, like John Connor be in the movie in the way that he is, is because he was listening to Sting sing about like, do the Russians love their children? And he was like on ecstasy and being like, 
yes, the children. It's all about the children, the destruction of the planet, the children of the victims, you know? And like, that's where this whole layer of the movie comes from. Uh, let's do a quick introduction. And then and then we'll just keep, we'll keep doing this. That's great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we did what I normally do, which is let us go for like almost five minutes until I bother. Uh, <laughs> welcome to 30 Years Later. I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri, and uh, this is your co-host, Chris Chafin. Say hi, Chris. Yes, hello, everyone. Today, we're joined by the uh, by film programmer uh, at the Spectacle Theater in Brooklyn, New York, and writer Steve McFarland, and he is joining us today. Uh, it's an honor to have him, and I think it's an honor for him to be here for this particular movie. Uh, it is kind of the... Um, Peter, you think it's an honor for him? Is that what you're saying, Ricky? He said it was an honor for it him. Is. I have it, it <laughs> no, recorded it here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, for what I feel like is in some ways the thesis of the podcast, or maybe we can uh, almost end the podcast after yeah, this because well, everything sure. is kind of downhill in terms of blockbuster movies following this movie um but uh we're talking about terminator 2 judgment day came out july 3rd 1991 highest grossing movie of 1991 one of the highest grossing r-rated movies of all time uh beaten by like probably the hangover movies (laughs) um and uh directed by james cameron and uh starring Arnold schwarzenegger linda hamilton edward furlong robert patrick uh xander berkeley (laughs) and in a part that i love Lest we and, forget. Uh, yeah, lest we forget. He has one of my uh, favorite lines in the movie when uh, the st- the foster mom tells him that he hasn't cleaned the room. He, John hasn't cleaned his room in a month. And Xander Berkeley says, oh, if it's important, I guess I'll take care of it. <laughs> Walks out. Um, uh, yeah, and there's, uh, there's really very little by way of facts that can be talked about in regards to this movie. I mean, everybody knows Terminator 2 Judgment Day. If you don't, I don't know where you've been. If you've never liked it enough to watch it more than once, I I, I would guess that you don't really like movies all that much. Um, in a lot of ways, Terminator 2, I don't think it's just because we grew up with it, is kind of the perfect blockbuster. It's the blueprint for the modern blockbuster, both in good and bad ways. Um, but it, in, in, in so many ways, it is a, it is a, a perfect movie, both in its production, how it was, how it was made and, and the, the, the final outcome of it. Um, Steve, what was your first interaction with Terminator 2? Well, it's funny you ask because, uh, I was going to ask both of you about your individual relationships to this movie. And before <laughs> that happens, let me explain, like, I don't remember my first interaction with this movie. I remember people in the early 90s saying, hasta la vista, baby, or no fate but what we make, or come with me if you want to live. Like, <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. I'm I'm, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but like, I remember everybody saying, hasta la vista, baby, come with me if you want to live. I never remembered anyone walking around being like, hey, no fate but what we make, right? <laughs> could be a Seattle thing. I don't know. But the point is, yeah, fair this, enough. this film... It was R-rated, and that, uh, you know, on the books, that should have prevented people from, you know, our generation from seeing it. But, of course, it was an event, so people brought their kids to see it. They brought their younger brothers to see it. You know, uh, T2 did not make the cut for me. There's a certain list of movies that I was not allowed to see in theaters upon release. Batman Returns, T2. uh, I think Super Mario was, like, the, the first film I was allowed to see in theaters, despite clearly being way too young for the intended age range, whatever. Um, 
wait, but, wait, can I can I just stop you for a second, Steve? Um, please. So what? So you say you saw Super Mario Brothers despite being way younger than the age range for Super? Because to me, Super Mario Brothers is a movie for like literally for five year olds. So like, how old were you when you saw Super Mario Brothers in the? Theater? I was probably five years old, but this is being negotiated right now because there's like a new fan edit that restores a lot of the like weird subversive um, New York kind of like grime to that movie. And the point is just people were trying to sort of smuggle transgressive elements into this PG-13 movie, uh, you know, based on this highly visible, like, intellectual property. T2, it's just like everyone wanted to see it, including the people who were not legally allowed to see it. And that kind of drove the value. And when I think about that, there's no other movie that fits that description until The Matrix, which is only seven years after T2 or eight years after T2, but feels like, you know, an entire generation difference, practically. Like, Yeah, and is there anything after that that you can think of that where that was an R-rated movie that was as sort of universally seen uh, at the time of its release? I, I don't know. I have a well, tr- hard time racking my brain, even though I've, the numbers would show, again, like the Hangover movies. Right, yeah, the Hangover movies. I mean, for me, I got to say, like, really... One of my great experiences like that is a great film you guys are maybe familiar with, which is Varsity Blues, where like, you know, everybody had to see it, even though we were all under 17. It was very important. I actually, in all seriousness, do remember being going to Varsity Blues, being underage. And they it was the only time in my life I have seen the usher was going around checking people's IDs like Hell inside yeah. the movie theater with a flashlight. And he caught some people and threw them out. And they were like just a row in front of me. And so then he stopped checking after that, basically, because I was getting really stressed out because I was not 17. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, in all seriousness, no, I can't think of another one. Uh, I, I also remember like, like, like Dr. Drew and Loveline uh, uh, imploring their listeners who happen to be movie theater employees. Like if you're listening to this and you work at a movie theater, please just open the emergency exit door and let more people in so that they can watch American Beauty, even though it's R-rated? Like, this movie needs to be seen. <laughs> That's amazing. They thought that it was a movie oh that God. must be seen. They this really wanted so people to see American Beauty. I mean, you know, like... <laughs> what about was it? it? The idea, what? Like, was it? Was it the idea that, like, someone's repressed sexuality could cause them to commit a, a, a murder? Was it, was it I think it might have been. I don't know. Like, yeah. We know a lot Do of our think- listeners are sexually frustrated 45-year-olds, so like we think it's really important for you to watch this movie. At the at the risk of going uh into a, a strong tangent, Joker is the highest grossing R-rated movie, honestly, by like a country mile. Um does that feel like a movie that was something that people were going to see a second time? That was something that like families were going to see? It 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 doesn't to me. It doesn't feel like something families were going to see to me for sure, but I do feel like every like adult has seen Joker. You know, uh, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a card carrying snob. I have never seen Joker because, despite being like a, a huge Batman freak in you know my childhood, I kind of like lost interest around the time that this new. But like, maybe I was when you hit puberty. I don't <laughs> yeah, know right. because, because that weekend that it came out, people were texting me like, "Steve, you work in film. Should I go see Joker? Is it safe?" It's like I don't fucking know. Yeah, probably. Like you know. Uh, oh, you mean like from mass shootings? Like, wasn't that supposed to be a thing for Joker? Like, well, time is folding upon itself because Tenet opens with this shooting that kind of reminded me of. Um, 
I mean, there's like the Moscow uh, hostage crisis in 2003, but you know, that Aurora shooting when the Dark Knight Rises came out was uh, some sort of like, it's weird to talk about mass shootings as if they were, you know, breakthroughs in technology or something, but that was, that was considered to be like the worst of the worst. And people kind of laid the blame at the foot of Warner Brothers and Batman culture for that. And now we're like in a totally different place, right? Joker was, watch it so that there isn't a mass shooting. Like Joker was some sort of political provocation, no? Yeah, but people still thought like, oh, this is a movie for the incels. And so they're going to come and do a mass shooting at Joker. Like that, that was kind of the reasoning, right? I always felt like the most dangerous part about Joker was that if there was a mass shooting during a Joker movie, like the audience members might not wake up fast enough to, to, to leave. <laughs> well, it's long, right? Yeah, like it was, plus hours and there's some sort of like... Yes, and it's, and, it's, and it's one note. The whole movie is one note. I mean, it's it's extremely boring. Chill out. Dickwad. Uh, the early 90s, it was all about Alien, Predator, and Terminator, right? And so, uh, you know, it was sort of a, a contraband film or a, 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 you know, controversial film, but not for like subject matter reasons, just because of the violence. And the violence was supposedly, you know, intense on a level that uh, PG-13 or like studio summer movies had not been up to this point. Um, interestingly, before we, you know, in the, in the lead up to this podcast, Ricky, I think, sent me the link to watch this uh, 35mm scan, right? Yeah, I sent that to you too, Chris, but I understand if you didn't want to download a 5 gigabyte file. I just watched it for like a second, you know, is what I did, yeah. I, I mean, on a, on a, I, I want to talk about that scan on a technical level and like if you've also watched it on DVD or streaming and like the differences that, that you happen to notice just simply in color, but we'll talk about that in a minute, Steve. Because, go ahead, sorry. the when I finally like spent quality time with T2, it was in my later teenage years on DVD because T2 was the movie that you had to watch on DVD. The director's cut, the Dolby surround, the like steel titanium case. It was kind of considered like this movie got released, but on home video, you can experience it the way it was meant to be experienced in the comfort of your own home, blah, blah, blah. And then like, this scan kind of brought me back to what people must have seen in the theater back when it actually came. Yes. Out, you know, so. Continue. Sorry. I was agreeing excitedly. <laughs> no, it's like, okay, we're, we're jumping all over time. We got Joker. We got Terminator in the early two thousands. Um, Matrix was the first movie to sell over a million uh, customer retail DVDs, right? Terminator two, probably on that same list within the top five or the top 10, and I remember like watching it and being like, wow, this, uh, you know, this film has been so cleaned up and so digitized and so like kept clean that it looks like it was made today, which is surely what James Cameron wanted people to think back in like 2002, 2003, whatever. Um, but the director's cut is also this kind of unwieldy beast with more uh, getting to know you kind of like buddy comedy, heartwarming Terminator stuff, you know. So to go back and rewatch the theatrical was kind of harsh in a certain way. I mean, it's a beautiful yes. um, scan, but it really had me thinking a lot more about like uh, the relationship between, okay, Cameron made T2, then the next film was uh, uh, True Lies, then after that came Titanic, you know, like what did this represent in terms of a breakthrough back then? Because it was the biggest, loudest, most expensive movie of all time, right? I mean, I don't know what you guys think. Yeah. 
it was the biggest it was the biggest budgeted movie and in terms of action sequences yeah i don't think there's anything like it before that and and, and even afterwards i just don't think i don't think there's anything like the la river ch- oh God, uh, chase, chase in any movie at, i mean like, people are still shooting that. chases in that la river basin because of t2 and none of them are as good you see them all the time i think there's been at least one or two in the fast and furious movies but oh, nothing totally. can touch this yeah. chase yeah nothing can touch it i mean it obviously there's things about the movie that are sort of um it feels like it's ending from the beginning it it, it sort of has this like slow motion uh sustained feeling of like oh i'm in an action set piece that's never going to end and i love it yeah you know? yeah definitely um the early nineties were a time when, you know, me and my two older brothers anyway, were obsessed with like ILM and Spielberg and like all these new innovations that, and T2 was considered to be some sort of breakthrough with the liquid metal, uh, Robert Patrick character, you know, but really what impresses me about it upon rewatch. And I guess this is why the podcast exists 30 years later is the finality of it and the absolute like apocalyptic end times like the movie to end all movies you know kind of um aesthetic and political approach which of course gets more complicated when you consider that they made a sequel uh 11 years later directed by someone who wasn't James Cameron but with Schwarzenegger's participation and i don't know if you guys did you watch T3 that's the one scenes in advance of this podcast recording uh I did not, but I watched it when it came out, and all that I remember is that there's a female, a blonde female Terminator that Schwarzenegger just beats the fuck out of. And it's the weirdest thing, even if you try to just stick with the context of the movie that she's a Terminator, it's very strange to watch Arnold Schwarzenegger smash a blonde woman's face into a toilet bowl. (laughs) the fact that they're i mean ricky i think that that's like that seems like your ideal version of a terminator movie like just based (laughs) on the things you have said on this podcast i think that's like what you're really hoping for when you press play on a movie well what is the perfect terminator film i mean it must be t2 honestly and it's probably the theatrical cut because one is too low budget and then three is like you know you're reaching you're inventing things. You're you're going beyond the mythology that doesn't need to exist, frankly. You know. Um, yeah, I would agree. I would agree that two is the 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 perfect T Terminator film. I love I love Terminator one a lot. And I will say, going back to this thirty five millimeter scan that appeared on Twitter somewhere, I don't remember who posted it, and then they at they 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 put a link to download it uh, for a few days, and I downloaded it and sent it to you guys, but. Uh, I, that's what I rewatched as well. And I had just watched about a month ago because my girlfriend hadn't seen it before. We watched like a, you know, something on Amazon Prime, right? And for whatever reason, the scan, you get a sense of the darkness and the violence of the movie that you don't really get in the digitized versions of the movie. I, I know to a lot of people that's going to sound corny like what are you talking about but like just the coloring of the the scan itself it is a metallic cold blue throughout the whole movie that the digital scans do not have at at, at all anymore there's far more like there's far more color added and i and i they're not like popping beautiful colors but more realistic colors whereas this scan is I don't know if it, maybe it was my TV. I don't know if it was this way for you, Steve, but I was consistently struck by how metallic blue every scene was washed out with. 
No, I mean, well, uh, uh, what people call bisexual lighting in Bushwick in 2021, it's like uh, p- uh, pink and blue fluorescent lights sort of juxtaposed against each other. This film is sort of like a weird analog forerunner to that because everything is either metallic blue or like fire orange. And you can really feel yes. the fire in the orange. Like it's like an analog red orange color. And, you know, it feels again like end times like this is never going to be uh, perfected upon or improved upon but in fact Cameron yeah. did that I guess I mean with those endless DVD re-releases like I also have in my notes um, like that it just it, I felt it right off the top of the movie uh, but like a blockbuster that allows itself to be evil um, and actually far more visual than like the ham-fisted obvious and cheeky blockbusters that we get now and I was for some reason my what made me think that was the shot of the terminator at the end of the at the end credits in the fire that like comes out and i just don't feel like you get that at all in blockbuster movies anymore that someone would like linger and hold on an image and it would be kind of a terrifying image to draw you into this movie and there's a a lot more humor in t2 than there is in t1 and i think maybe even more in t2 than the following terminator movies but there's something about that opening image of the metallic Terminator in the fire coming out at the screen that feels particularly haunting rather than corny or or like a branding exercise, which is what it would feel like now. It feels like he's he realizes exactly what that image means and how it affects people and he lingers on it rather than just trying to like get to the next story beat as fast as possible, which he's also very good at. Well... In T1, Schwarzenegger is uh, unequivocally the bad guy, right? Like, so things are just more complicated all around on the second one. But there's also, like, we were DMing a little bit about Robert Patrick and his brother. And, um, you know, the idea of Robert Patrick as the the quintessential LAPD, like, highway cop or whatever, you know. Um, This movie is how does he shifting know, evil how, from this or that person. Like you think evil is going to be Miles Dyson. And then when Joe Morton appears on screen, you're like, oh, no, he's like a regular dude. Uh, you know, like James Cameron's way of addressing maybe racial inequity or something like his family, even though that they're. I guess going to be complicit in the murder of what do they say, three billion people like, you know, yeah, everyone in the movie well, that, is the other thing, trying to figure out where well, the good guys are and where the bad guys are, you know. And also, like, in regards to the movie allowing itself to be evil, the scene with where, where Linda Hamilton goes to Miles Dyson's house and shoots it up, and then Edward Furlong and, and Schwarzenegger show up, it's set, like, you really feel the fear of that family that think that this is going to be some sort of in-cold-blood home invasion where these people are just going to, like, murder their family for no reason. Right, like, like they've they just are... burst into their house and are shooting them all dead. Like, shooting up the entire house for absolutely no reason that they can understand. And then Edward Furlong, Long... especially, I think, is so good in that scene because she just seems Edward... so scared. She's terrified, and Edward Furlong hands Schwarzenegger a knife and goes, show them, and then grabs the kid and goes, Danny, show me your room. Why don't you show me your room? And, like, walks him away. If you're that family... I mean, the the film is showing you a family that thinks that they're about to get like diced up and cut in their own home, which I just don't think a blockbuster would ever have the guts to even go that that dark. 
Because you don't even really know. You know that these guys are saving Sarah, but if you're seeing this movie for the first time, you don't know that he's going to cut his, hand, his the skin off his arm and show them the 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 machine arm. You and I mean, know you don't that know right that away. Sarah Connor's not going to kill these people. I mean, it seems like maybe she should kill them. You know what I mean? Like it is. I mean, this is one of the things they talk about in that the Ringer oral history a lot. James Cameron is of course patting himself on the back, but he's talking about how like this sequence is one of the all time, like, will they like, will she, or won't she like, is, is this person going to do this thing or aren't they? Because Sarah Connor like has her finger on the trigger and we all have all seen her dream where these like children are melting in the apocalypse. And she knows that if she kills this person, it'll never happen. And you know, her fingers on the trigger. And in so many movies, you would just absolutely know she's definitely not going to kill this person. Like blah, blah, who cares? You know, Superman's not going to survive. Do you know what I mean? But in this movie, you're like, shit i mean maybe she should kill this person like kind of i would you watching it this time i was kind of mad that she didn't kill him i was like honestly that probably was the right thing to do would be to kill him you know well I, I, the, the movie primes you for that until they're all in the same room together and then you're like oh the person doesn't know what their future self is going to be responsible for you know like uh it, it's the corniest shit ever yet somehow you're like oh no that's pretty profound for a huge summer blockbuster i mean I don't know. Well, I think it's, I think again, it, what's not, and this goes back to Charles Bromesco just put out an article, I think today or yesterday for the guardian that, which is, I had the immediate feeling yesterday when I was watching the movie, which is how Hollywood learned all the wrong lessons from T2. Yeah, right. And there are all of these elements of T2 that is, are like the corniest shit possible, right? Like you just said, but they're juxtaposed against real ugliness consistently throughout the movie, real violence, you know, that, 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 that happens throughout the movie. So you start to believe in the fairy tale of the kid a little more when the, when the Terminator has to die at, in, at the end, you start to believe even more in this set in, in the sense that they have to save the world because you've seen a nuclear Holocaust. And it's gross. It's so disturbing the way the nuclear yes. Holocaust is portrayed, you know, that you're like, I mean, in, and you're so, you're so in Linda Hamilton's head at that point you see her wake up from that dream and you know that it's not really a dream, you know, like that's literally what's going to happen. And it's it, not the shit where you see in movies now where it's like a portal opens in the sky right. that doesn't really register or mean anything. And someone is like, Oh no, the, the time, the time vortex has suddenly lifted because Malargi has come back from the space place that well, he's like, from. And now the, we have to close it. And like, the Avengers the movie, that mean? in the Avengers movie, the people literally like turn into dust and gently float away, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, that is not what happens in Terminator 2. In Terminator 2, our main character burns for a long time in this show. Well, T2 sort of reconciles a bunch of different kind of Cold War threads in a very satisfying bundle because, you know, there's like the notion that when the end comes, none of us will have any idea that it's happening and we'll just like look out the window and that'll be it. And that'll that's great. And then there's also yeah, the it's idea. Like, it's of, like it's like the 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 Daisy ad, right? It's like that kind exactly, of thing, exactly. Know? But 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 via Linda Linda Hamilton, you get the thing of like, what would it actually feel like to be uh, watching this play out while your hands are on a chain link fence, while you're like screaming no no, while you're like being burned alive yet still somehow cognizant. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I I give Cameron a lot of credit for that sequence actually because. Uh, revisiting movies like this, you know, uh, 20, 30 years after the fact, it's like what really stuck with me in my memory, that sequence is probably my first recall from T2, like her vision of the yeah. apocalypse, you know, 
and it goes back to that sting thing, which is, I guess, Cameron was really uh, fancying himself some sort of like political theorist about, you know, East and West, the United States and Russia, the Cold War, the inevitability of like total atomic decimation, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, this is one of the things, again, I'm going to bring up this oral history all the time, but um, they were talking about in the article, they were just saying, what an insane risk. They spent this huge amount of money in this movie to make this seconds-long dream sequence, and it just seems like definitely the kind of thing where you could just, like, cut the budget a little bit and not spend that much time on it, because it lasts for, like, a minute, and, you know, it's a dream, and, like, who cares? But doing it in the way, exactly the way that they did did it is so important to the movie and like you're saying it's one of the like immortal things about the movie that gets referenced all the time and you just you just it sticks in your mind and that again is like such a james cameron thing is that like it's the easiest thing to cut corners on and he absolutely refuses to cut any corners on anything and that is why his movies are amazing well i think also bringing up the director's cut which you were steve i you see in the director's cut a bit more of a searcher of a storyteller rather than this sort of like exacting master, which of course he's considered all the time because there are all of these scenes in the extended cut that feel like I don't, a director being like, I don't know how much I have to say that this thing is bad in order for the audience to be on Sarah's side when she does this. So you have all, you know, you have multiple scenes of abuse in the mental hospital, (laughs) like, like that, that you sort of get just by the fact that that piece of shit doc psychiatrist is keeping her there and lying to her. And that one of the orderlies licks her face, but like instead in the extended cut, you have her getting the shit kicked out of her by a couple orderlies just for fun. And I think there's even like another moment where, where where they do something to her. But then there's also these other instances where he just doesn't know how much he has to put into the movie in order to tell the story. And I don't feel like you really get that with movies. Not to do, I, as much as the podcast is called 30 Years Later and we should always follow through with that. I don't <laughs> feel like you get that that much with blockbuster movies anymore where it's like there is one filmmaker who's searching for the story who knows the story, but is kind of searching for all the elements at the same time, rather than just like a committee who has gotten together to pinpoint exactly what needs to be done and said to tell this marketing, this, this, this piece of marketing material. Well, and, and, you know, I have not seen black widow, for example. So how T2, you know, corresponds to what's happening, I guess, in some multiplexes right now, mid pandemic, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, the movie has a certain, like I said, finality to it. Like it was uh, not meant to be followed up on, which is why it was kind of hilarious to me in 2003 when they released Rise of the Machines, which, you know, they made their money, I'm pretty sure, but it's kind of this like middle ground between the end of history blockbuster that is T2 Judgment Day and like our current status, which is, if there's an intellectual property, i.e. the Terminator, we can just keep going back to that well and keep making right. money off of it, you know. And um, I, I mean, indeed, they have made so many more Terminator movies, like up until last year, right? I mean, it is at this point, it's just an IP where they just make a, a movie every two years that is like, quote unquote, a Terminator movie. Because like literally the image of Schwarzenegger saying, I'll be back. Like that's like, that's like a quarter billion dollars right there. Like if you can just find a way to keep yeah. that alive, that will you know, employ like several small countries, you know, like, uh, <laughs> but it is but, it's on the strength of this, this film, right? It's all based on the strength of this film and based on the, like the way that this film just like interfaced with public consciousness at the time. And then on and on and on forever. 
Um, it's that you're still able, you're generating billions of dollars in revenue and theme park rides and all sorts of shit based on just like this film. <laughs> you know, it's so fascinating because there are so many sequences in it that just became you know, instantly, instantly iconic and are you completely shaped culture, like, you know, American slash human culture for the foreseeable future, you know? Yeah. And that, that, you know, the aqueduct sequence, the mall sequence leading into, uh, you know, the second half of the movie, like it's a sort of a classical pacing, but it's also combined with that sense of like a summer blockbuster spectacle where everyone's one upping everybody else. That was so pervasive in the, you know, early to mid 1990s. And, what did that turn into after uh, Devlin Emmerich, after, you know, the first couple of Marvel movies? I'm not sure, but there's there's something despairing about T2 uh, that I really love that you kind of don't get from the blockbusters now. And the fact that there are, yeah. what, five sequels? No, there's there's McGee, there's Jonathan Mostow, there's the Deadpool guys. I guess there's like three or four theatrical Terminator films that came after T2. Plus I the mean, web- they're all bad. Every single one of them is bad. I, I just want to add really fast, because you said his name, Jonathan Musto, the guy who directed Rise of the Machines. While we were talking, I was just perusing his Wikipedia, and under personal life, it says, on October 7th, 2018, Musto married Lori Sandell. The two met through J-Date in 2014. I've just never <laughs> seen wow. that on a Wikipedia. <laughs> I've never seen like a, 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 a director of big budget Hollywood right, movies right. being like, I met my wife on an app. <laughs> Is this like the marketing team of J-Date has put this on his Wikipedia page? Mostow directed Breakdown, which was considered to be kind of like a thinking man's studio melodrama in 1998 or 1999 starring Kurt Russell, um, such that I'm kind of like, what would his career have been if he had not been... Uh, cleaning up sloppy seconds for Cameron, Vassar, etc. You know, like this movie, when you watch it, T2, when you rewatch it in hindsight, you're like, this was supposed to be the end of the Terminator yeah, saga. Right. This like, story is over now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how they sort of rationalize the difference between that and Rise of the Machines very interesting to me, personal. Well, so speaking of this bullshit, Steve, like what you just said, like they just have the fucking Terminator come in and kill John Connor. And like, it's supposed to be like a, a, you know, a month after fucking Terminator two. And they're like, Oh, actually this is what happened. You know? Um, with some sort of sucks. like, like narrative plausibility. I mean, salvation I watched by McGee. And that was like, kind of, did you watch salvation just so that you could see the scene that was potentially the one Christian Bale went crazy <laughs> on, while, while shooting? There's that, but then there's also like the nude Arnold uh, uh, CGI at the end, like the the kind of the oh. what do you say? Like he opens up the chamber and there's like a naked Schwarzenegger, just like in T1 and T2, um, and you're like, okay, wow, they're bringing it back, you know, old school, but for a new generation. No, salvation, salvation was like really painful, and I think you can kind of tell while watching it that that. Nobody involved, everyone knew how important it was, but nobody had like an emotional stake in pushing the story forward this way. It's kind of like lost, you know. Like speaking of that, like the way that the sequels, you know, imitate and fail to improve upon the earlier movies like T2 specifically. So watching T2, one of the things my wife said when we were watching it was the scene where uh, Arnold comes back to the present from the from the future she was like, oh, I love how it's like everything's melted in an exact sphere and it's all cut in a sphere. 
And I was like, oh yeah, that's like a real fun touch and it's like really well done. Then watching, I just happened to see Dark Fate recently because the person in front of me on an airplane was was watching it and I was watching it over their shoulder. Um, and Dark Fate, they there's like, oh, somebody comes in in a sphere, but it's like 10 feet in the air and then they fall to the ground. And then they actually do like five different sphere introductions in the first like 15 minutes of the movie. And each one of them is trying to do some kind of weird like, oh, what if it happened like this or like this or like this? And it's just it's so tedious and pointless and not impressive, like a million miles less impressive than just like a piece of metal being cut in kind of a curve and that nobody's really commenting right. on it. And it's just happening in the background. You're just like, because you notice it as the viewer and you're like, Oh, and then you're putting it all together and you're like, Oh, that's actually really cool. You know, there's none of that for kind of filmmaking anymore. Well, I wonder if there's none of that kind of filmmaking anymore because there doesn't have to be. Right. Right. I mean, if you watch dark fate, I think like you just said, like it, any idea that you, T2 was kind of the beginning of this. Any idea that you could possibly have, we can do with computers now. Right. And they couldn't yet do it with T2, but they had they had started that. And that's one of the bad, poor lessons that Hollywood learned from T2. And so now when you watch a movie, it just feels like a cartoon because there's no... And Dark Fate, I, specifically to me, felt like a cartoon. You know, there's like an underwater battle with a, with a truck it, 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 in that movie. It, like, it just doesn't make any sense. And it... it Sure, if you're watching like a fast movie that that make a, a Fast and Furious movie, that makes sense to me. They've sort of established that they'll do that shit. But the Terminator movies, they're not really supposed to. They're still supposed to be the machines are the ones that can do crazy shit. Humans still have to operate by human rules, right? And uh, but that, that and that's that, what's that scary about it. In, that's what's scary yes. about the concept, you know. <laughs> but that just can't exist in a blockbuster movie anymore. A blockbuster movie has to be, it, it doesn't matter what the rules of humanity are. We have to up the ante with the, with the animation as much as possible. And there's, well, so there's just no stakes, but I was really stricken rewatching T2 theatrical cut. I was really stricken by a brief passage where um, Sarah Connor's voiceover is like, you know, a machine doesn't get drunk and slap you in the face. A machine doesn't say they'll spend time with you and then bail. A machine doesn't uh, claim that your birthday is important and then not show up. You know, like the machine learning that, that Cameron is like sort of warning us against, but also kind of like gilding the lily for, you know, we're fully in it right now, right? Like people are, this is a pre-phone or a pre-smartphone movie. So it's just kind of like, damn, and then you look at the director's cut. The director's cut is all about Schwarzenegger slash Terminator learning how to empathize with humans and act more convincingly like a human. You're like, these aims are a little bit conflicted. Like, I don't want him to become 100% human because then he's not the Terminator. But at the same time, the whole drama of the movie is about how, how far Edward Furlong can take him in the direction of passing himself off as a human for the future, for some future, you know, like... I have I have two thoughts about that that voiceover that she has, which is the first one was I would have liked to have seen the Terminator not die at the end so that I could have watched 
uh, a Terminator have to babysit this kid as he became a really <laughs> shitty teenager? That's the real T3 right there. No, totally. Yeah, yeah. like, yeah, like the T3, like, you know, the ter- like, Schwarzenegger being like, I, do- I think you've had enough to drink tonight. <laughs> have you completed like, your homework? Yeah, and he'd be like, shut up, you tin can. I didn't tell you to say that. Okay, yeah, but I'm just saying, though, you know, be, be careful. I want you to like, say like, hasta la vista, baby, to the leaves <laughs> on the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other the other thought i had was you know there's a whole deleted scene where they remove uh the t-800 schwarzenegger's uh, oh, chip God. to make him to make him a learning computer so he can empathize more right you don't end up needing it in the feature in the in the in the final cut of the movie but it's Cameron trying to establish how this character can start being more emotional. Like we get to see him be throughout the movie. There's something with the Robert Patrick T 1000, where if he is ostensibly, you know, a better model than the T 800 in 1984, but he'd still have the same learning capabilities. How does he know how to be a cop so well? Like, like he (laughs) takes over the body of this cop and then he shows up at this family's house and he's like, He's like, are you the legal guardians of John right. Connor? And he's like That's smiling, good... like he's yeah, very like, charming. This, this is a good looking boy you've got here. Thanks so much. Nothing to worry about. Like he's literally doing the an impression of a cop. And I was like, I couldn't help but think like, how does this Terminator know how to act just like a cop? Like he should be like Kang or Kodos from The Simpsons. He should be like, hello, human. That's how Schwarzenegger is in the first movie, right? He shows up at doors and goes, Sarah Connor, and then just starts blasting people. Right, right. Well, right. He has no sense of humanity whatsoever. Rise of the Machines has this, uh, you know, it's not famous or infamous because no one gives a shit. <laughs> T2 was the final movie in this franchise. But early in the film, Schwarzenegger goes to a, uh, you know, strip club um, and there's like a pair of star shaped sunglasses that someone puts on him and then he wears them for the rest of the scene. And it's like this sort of like retro put on like, oh, wow, the Terminator still doesn't know how to interpret, you know, human sarcasm or human subtlety. And uh, I think that's interesting. But it also, again, it's like you could keep divining this idea for like future intellectual property content, or you could just build on the relationship. I mean, T2 theatrical, the, uh, the, the scan that we talked about earlier, I was like, okay, the heart of this movie is Schwarzenegger's relationship with Edward Furlong. And then about halfway through it sort of perspective switches from Furlong to Sarah Connor. Right. Like, and like what, what's really at stake here, you know, the, the relationship between Schwarzenegger and Furlong is iconic. And I don't really think the franchise ever found a way to reconcile the absence of, you know, those two stars at that time. Like dark fate actually does try to create a new and interesting relationship with a female terminator, uh, another female terminator, but it, it, it doesn't really work. A lot of people saw it as like a very, um, uh, sort of uh, i'm gonna butcher this saying this and so i'll probably end up cutting it but some kind of like allegory for like lesbian empowerment um that cameron was putting out there uh that may be the case that was definitely above my head when i was watching it because i just thought it was really it just seems like a really shitty action movie and then granted i did watch it over someone's shoulder on an airplane with the sound turned off but it was like mostly fights like most i saw it in a movie theater 
Yeah. I mean, because I had to in- interview someone for it. Mostly it's people punching each other, right? I mean, that's like most of the movie. Yes. And big, big, crazy action sequences that are not done practically in any way yeah. whatsoever. They're- and again, I think you're right in saying, Steve, that this is kind of like there's a finality to it, not just in terms of the Terminator series, but to me, there's a finality to it in terms of the, the, the blockbuster and this idea and, and this block and the blockbuster that will take yeah. the practical action movie of the eighties and suddenly start mixing it with a new idea. And I guess you could say the matrix does that as well, but the matrix is really the beginning of like s- simply doing CGI. Like I know that there's right. a lot of kung fu and Addy, but I mean the Matrix to me is the big, be- and I love the Matrix. It's the beginning of you know wall wall to wall CGI. Um, the lure I mean, or the promise of the sequels was that they were going to use CGI to generate things that we could not tell the difference of. In other words, like <laughs> like there's going to be fight happen. sequences, but you won't be able to you you will not be able to tell if it's a human being or if it's just pixels. You know. And yeah, like like in Harry Potter when Harry's hanging off that giant troll and you can't at oh, all God. tell that it's CGI. It's like magic. It's so cool to see. But it's also like you, you become you know, a fascist because you're like, why why couldn't they just dangle a kid upside down for like 45 minutes, you know, with like union right, protections right. or whatever, like, you know, like there, you know, there is in 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 Terminator 2, there is only I'm gonna I'm not gonna remember this number specifically but oh no i have it uh, right here there's only 42 vfx shots in terminator yeah yeah and there were 50 or 60 prosthetic uh, like makeup effects so there's still like not even close to the totality of the effects right um but somehow right it but it was this kind of proof of concept and it's james cameron and ilm building off of the stuff they did on the abyss, which is like, you know, he tells these stories about Fox being really pissed that like the abyss basically didn't make any money, but then he used all the technology from the abyss to make Terminator two, which was like the highest grossing movie of the year and a huge, huge hit. Um, because it was basically like they refined things in this really interesting way. Cause there's this liquid monster on the, um, on the abyss. And so on in Terminator two, he's like, okay, well, what if we just, instead of making it see-through because that caused so many problems because you have to see the stuff behind it. It's like, we'll just make it metal and it reflects stuff. Like, is, can we do that? And they're like, oh, they figured out how to do that. And they're using the morphing technology and all that. Uh, and, but then combining it with makeup in a really interesting way, like in one of my favorite scenes, and now I'm like cannibalizing stuff I was going to do at the end, but like the thing where the T-1000 turns it, he's John Connor's foster mother, and he stabs the foster father through the milk Sandra carton. Sandra Berkeley. Sandra Berkeley, right. Stabs Sandra the Berkeley, foster father yeah. through the milk carton with his like blade arm. It's like such an amazing effect, and it's such a good, I guess that's actually all makeup effects. Right. Because they're in this oral history, they talk about there being like six different arms with like different like backings on them. And the guy who was who got murdered had to lay in a pool of his own blood and milk for like, you know, an entire night while they shot this sequence. And he said James Cameron would come over personally and twirl the milk and blood together (laughs) like before every shot. I mean, well, there's also that story in the uh, the woman in that scene who an actress whose name I can't remember, but who's also in Aliens, who's also in Near Dark uh, and who's in, in, in this and I think is maybe in the abyss as well. Um, she's in she's just part of was part of the Cameron Bigelow sort of tribe around that time. The woman who played the foster mother, she said that like working with Cameron, everybody imagines it to be like this long 
it takes a long time, the special effects extravaganza, but Cameron will be the first person on the set to be like, fuck it, just put some gaffer tape up there and let's do this. Exactly. Which I think is it's so inspiring that like, I mean, he, you know, we had someone on this podcast recently who knew somebody that works at the, the VFX lab that's doing avatar. And the, the word there is oh, that like, God. he's, ex, he's exacting and he can be like pretty difficult, but unlike other directors that the VFX lab has worked for, everything he says is right. Like they will disagree with him. And then an hour later be like, fuck, he was right. And he's like, like wasting all kinds of money and throwing away whole sequences. But yeah, every time he has a note for the VFX lab, they're like, shit, it is better that way. This fucking son of a bitch. Jurassic Park is is part practical and part CGI. And I, you know, what the thing that separates this from Jurassic Park with for me is that this is an R-rated movie and violence-wise, like a pretty hard R-rated movie. Um, but I still find Jurassic Park to be filled with awe and you know a wonderful watch i i stand by the spielberg fairly often yeah no i think i mean i think jurassic it's an amazing film right i mean it is it fills you with wonder and you feel like it it sets up the movie in such a way that when you first see the dinosaurs you're just like my god you know it's such a beautiful moment i haven't but you know what doesn't fill you with wonder sorry go ahead i haven't revisited jurassic park the film in a moment but i have had many conversations over the last 10 to 15 years which is just like why did the special effects in this movie look just as good now as they did in 1993 like what changed or didn't change or failed to change you know like they 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 do but i and and i think that's because it's a mixture of practical and cgi it's not just this like absolutely sort of throwaway belief that like oh whatever people will buy it no matter what you know, people are going to go see the movie no matter what. Who cares? Like Ready Player One, you know, like Ready Player One. I think it rightfully has its defenders and there's reasons that I would defend it as well. But I also think it looks like shit um, in the same way that every every blockbuster movie looks like shit right now. Um, yeah, well, I mean, God, if you're going to talk about like CGI, if things that have no stakes, I mean, like that's kind of the ultimate example of that. I mean, it is exciting in a certain way and it is can be kind of fun if you shut your brain off a little bit. But in general, like what a horror show, you know, do you guys cry at the end of this movie? I didn't this time, but I definitely have in the past gotten pretty emotional at the end of this movie. I mean, it's really sad, right? I mean, it's beautiful because it, the the movie, the strength of the film in a lot of ways is the relationship between the Terminator and John Connor, right? And the him and and Sarah and Sarah Connor and like learning to be part of their world and then that he's sacrificing himself for them, you know, so willingly. It's like and it may be unnecessarily, like maybe he doesn't really have to, but he's just doing it to be like 100% sure. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty fucking moving. It's really, really beautiful. Yeah, this time I watched it, I didn't, but last the time that I watched it about a month ago, um, I think it's because this time this time that I watched it, I had, because I had just seen it a month ago, I was kind of like cooking while I was watching it, and I wasn't just like, you know, totally zoned in on the movie. Um, but yeah, when I watched it a month ago, just completely just solely watching the movie i i kind of cried a lot i mean it's extremely manipulative and sentimental as most movies were criticized for like hollywood movies were criticized for at that time i will say anybody who criticized james cameron in 1991 as a critic like 
did not know how good they had it oh in terms of movies at that time. Like, go fuck yourself. Oh <laughs> like, well, you have no idea how bad things were going to get. Yeah. Avatar is a real sore point for me because Avatar is probably the last time I saw a film in the theater and I was like literally shutting my eyes like this is so hideous. I'm just going to close my eyes until it's over. I can't wait till this is over. Like, when the fuck can I leave this theater? Blah, blah, blah. You know, but if it was some rando, it would be easy to make fun of. But of course, it's James Cameron who made T2, the ultimate blockbuster of all time. So it's like, okay. How do I end Titanic, you know? Um, and I mean, it was the highest grossing movie of all time. for. And a, it was the highest grossing yeah. movie in human history, which is like even weirder to consider, you know, now 10, 12, 11 years after the fact. Like, Avatar? Can I just say my, can I say my own little story about Avatar, which is like, it's also a sore point for me. I think about it often, like, okay, so here's my personal history with Avatar is I, I saw it on Christmas Day with my whole family, my young cousins who were at the time like 10 years old or something, and my brother who loves movies, and my mom loves movies, and so we saw it, and we, you know, and obviously we've been home for a week, we don't have much to talk about. We walk out of Avatar, and we were just like, we loved it so much, we were talking about it for like the whole day, because like we had nothing else to talk about, right? But so I got back to New York, and my girlfriend at the time, I was like, oh, you know, we saw this movie on Christmas, and Avatar, it was so much fun, like, I think you might really like it. And she was like, do you really think so? And I was like, yeah, totally. And so I took her to go see. So I saw Avatar a second time in the theater. After about 10 minutes in, she obviously hated it. And I was like, oh, no, wait, this movie is awful. <laughs> like, what have I done? Oh, no. And I was so embarrassed because I had talked it up so much to her. And then it was just like it was I just like being hit in the face of the bucket of water. I was like, wait, this is the movie I was talking about. Oh, no. <laughs> but oh, no. Had similar relationships with Titanic. Like Titanic was like the most important movie to see in the world in like 1997. And then by like, you know, six months later, everyone was making fun of it. And it's like, wait, but. You were like bawling your eyes out in the fucking movie theater. Like, who are you? You know. But. Yeah, I stand. I stand by Titanic. I mean, I think it's. I mean, I think Titanic's better than Avatar for sure. Like, way better. Yeah, it's corny as fuck, but I also think it. It's intentionally that way. It earns it in a way, and 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 the sequence of the boat going down is is just incredible. Like only he could do that, and it's the last hour and a half of the movie. So if you can get through an hour and a half of schmaltz, like. By the the you will enjoy you will Series. be able to embrace the, the 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 back half. I mean, James Cameron so made Fly Away Home into a disaster movie, which is like <laughs> amazing, amazing. So the thing, one of the things about Avatar is that it was the number one grossing movie um, ever, and then Avengers Endgame came out, and it and right. it and it replaced Avatar. And then Avatar, then James Cameron re-released Avatar in China, so he could get, make the money back to be Endgame, which is so fucking awesome. It's so awesome! It's the pettiest thing in the world, but also like, yes, yes, I'm so glad he did it. I am too. I mean, I would rather see as much as I don't. I don't love Avatar. I would prefer to see an original film that's not based on right. IP like be the number one movie. And I, I, I like to think that it wasn't just like a personal thing. It was potentially for that reason. Yeah. That so it's not that. just like the 20th Marvel movie. That's like the culmination of some kind of IP TV show that's been going on in movie theaters for a decade is the highest grossing movie of all time. It's like, 
I would much rather be demented James Cameron's environmental terrorism cartoon, you know, like, James James Cameron's Alien oh Dances with Wolves, James Cameron's Fern Gully, you know, like. Well, like we um, we supposedly know how Scorsese feels about this uh, marvelization of you know major studio releases. I would be very curious to know what Cameron thinks because, as uh, I think Ricky pointed out at the beginning of this recording session, T two sort of like. It's not the template for the current summer blockbuster, but it's like one generation pass. Like right, you can yeah. see the relationship between T2 and Avengers Endgame in some way, but it's on the other yeah. end totally yeah. different. Like, you know. Well, I think it's also the blueprint for the the like the story is in the action and each scene has to lead to the next action sequence. Like we're trying to get to this uh, that sounds like I'm selling T2 short, but no, I'm but not you're right. No, he too was able to do that in an emotional way that still tells a pretty impactful story. Whereas like most of the movies that try to do that now, you really feel like you're playing a video game that's just trying to get to the next level. And at the end of the level, there's a boss that has to be fought or like a, an action sequence. Well, I mean, the very be best, the very best action movies, the action is a kind of, you know, it's this like kinetic performance that's all like silent cinema. And, you know, you're watching people acting and reacting and you know you're seeing life and death stakes and how they behave in these situations and it's like the purest kind of filmmaking in a certain way you know i think i mean i think with t2 if you just say like the first action sequence is one terminator trying to save the kid from another terminator and then he gets him and he saves him the next action sequence is trying to save the mother from from the mental institution and terminator is going to get there and then the next action sequence is like you know whether or not this she's going to kill this guy and they have to save the guy. Like it keeps adding these elements that make sense within the story and build action sequences. Whereas I think you watch a movie now often and it's like, Oh no, the bad guy's back in town. We have to stop him again. Right. Oh, and right. we are meeting the bad guy in this crazy new environment. Like what if we met the bad guy in a knife museum, you know? Yeah. <laughs> there's really, there's really like a story building to each action action set piece. And I think that's just because I I, I don't I don't know why it is. It it feels like it it just doesn't matter. Like why would it matter to do that? The point is to get together and figure out what the action set pieces are going to be and the rest will fall into place around that. The Fast and Furious movies being the best example of that, even though I don't really like to use those movies as examples for anything because they're I, who, what's the point of knocking those movies? Yeah, right. Like, like they are what they are. are they know exactly. They know exactly what they're doing, and they're doing it at a very successful high level. Do you know what I mean? Like Robert Patrick, like sort of seems like someone who would have been a huge movie star, but this role kind of ruined his career because it was so iconic. Like that's kind of how I think of it. Like imagine trying to cast Robert Patrick as anything other than T one thousand after Judgment Day. You know, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, right. Um, well, he was in he was in Fire in the Sky, which was a movie that blew my fucking mind oh, when that, I was in talk middle about school. a scary movie for kids, right? That was like a yeah. big, like a talk about like the kind of thing you were talking about, Steve, like a like a kind of Sam's dot, like you know, forbidden movie. Like oh, that was cool. that for me, a Fire in the Sky. It was so um, scary and weird, and it was like real. He was in that, and but you're right. I mean, he should have been a huge movie star, but instead he became. I wouldn't even say a character actor because it's not, it, it was like, uh, yeah, he's a one, even, he's a one character actor. Like, like, like yeah. revisiting the faculty recently. I'm like, okay, Patrick is 
playing against type, but type is T1000, basically. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I don't know. Like, this only makes sense if you're aware of him as T1000. Like, otherwise, exactly. it's like, why would you care about this? Right. But he was great in his, uh, like, few episode arc in The Sopranos. I will, I will say that. But that's much later. And that's clearly, like, you know, you're doing a few episode arc in Sopranos because you're not the movie star that you were supposed to be coming off of one of the biggest movies ever made. Right. But people um, will know right. and people will remember, you know, like, I mean, in this oral history, he does talk about this and he's, you know, he's saying the thing people say when they're trying to be positive And that's like, you never really know to what extent they mean it, but he's basically saying, you know, look, I'm just lucky that I ever did something that people responded to and they remember me for, you know, as, as awful as it is and as much damage as it did to his career, he's, at, he's trying to portray himself as being at an age where he can say like, well, at least I did like one thing that like was so iconic, you know, that everybody knows it. I also think like in hindsight for him, uh, yeah, sure. Maybe he didn't become the massive celebrity that he thought he would become, but it's not like he didn't get a ton of work for yeah, it afterwards. He, afterwards, he could be fine. like a working actor who's doing pretty well, like much more so than 80 to 90 percent exactly. of other actors out. In the and world. I mean, this is what Mark Hamill says, too, is like, you know, yeah, OK, I never could do anything else but be Luke Skywalker. But like, is I guess it's cool that I was Luke Skywalker compared to like everybody else that I knew in L.A., you know, who didn't get, come anywhere close right. to being Luke Skywalker. I mean, but fuck, like Robert Patrick was in Rosewood. He was in Copland. He was in the faculty. He was in, uh, like we said, Fire in the Sky, All the Pretty Horses, Spy Kids. I mean, he did. A, he had a yeah. lot of work afterwards, and then he had The Sopranos, and he was in Walk the Line. I mean, it's oh, not yeah, like he was, he was in Walk the Line. Yeah. yeah, he was in Flags of Our Fathers. Um, I'm pretty sure he's a right winger now. But <laughs> oh, really? I he seems know. like he would be. Yeah. And yeah. I, don't I don't know why know. I say that, but he does seem like he would be, right? Well, here's I don't a know if he's a, a right winger like like a Mel Gibson right winger or something. I think he's more like a Gary Sinise style right winger. A little more, a little more chaos. Uh, uh, you you could probably record an entire podcast episode on the relationship between T two, uh, Strange Days and the Rodney King tape, because yes. Cameron is very fond of pushing this notion that T two was being filmed across the street from the uh, I guess actual street address where that beating took place, where that video was recorded, and that. The first half of the tape is police beating Rodney King, and the second half of the tape is some guy capturing footage of like the shooting of T two. You know, um, <laughs> so, as I'm rewatching the that, wait, hold on, that is such an incredible example of like something that I'm always disturbed by now, which is that like it's all just content. Like that's such an early <laughs> right, example. Right, like right. everything is content, and there's no there's no meaning to any of it. I'm just capturing what I can all the time. I mean, is that's that why the guy was there? The is that why the example. guy? Is that why the person was there in the first place? They were trying to get footage of T2? Like, is T2 the reason we have the Rodney King tape? Like, we know Strange Days is a reaction to Rodney King, but what if Rodney King never would have happened without the filming of T2? I don't know. Because <laughs> there is this, you know, uh, re-watching the movie, I was kind of like, how does T2 interact with the LA riots? And it's like, well, okay, the beating and the video are contemporaneous with the recording of the film, so there's really no relationship. But at the same time, you know, um, 
people on the left could see T2 as like an anti-cop movie and people who are into law enforcement and guns and machinery and equipment could see T2 as like a total, you know, like show reel, like demo reel. And right, Cameron, it's, it's, a, it's a survivalist, you know, it's pro survivalist, right? Like it textually in the movie, it's like good that Lyndall Hamilton has a stockpile of guns, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> I, well, there is a, there is the quote from James Cameron, about cops, which uh, I think was referenced in um, the sort of post George Floyd protests in LA where I don't know if anybody remembers there was that, that like um, city council meeting from LA that was posted uh, like zoom meeting that was posted online. That was like, they got to talk to cops and like a number of people just like got on and roasted the police commissioner. And one of them referenced this quote from Cameron, which was cops think all non-cops as less than they are stupid, weak, and evil. They dehumanize the people they are sworn to protect and desensitize themselves in order to do that job. So he wasn't a fan of authority, to say the least. Yeah, right. And I mean, it comes through in the movie, right? I mean, what an you know, it's so great that the T-1000 is a cop for the whole movie. Like, how much value did that do to culture? The fact that there's this, like, iconic villain who's a nice cop, but, like, underneath, he's an, an evil murderer. You know, I, I think it's so helpful that it established that paradigm in people's minds, you know, that kind of archetype, because that's that is a true kind of person, you know, and there's lots of that kind of person. And I think that but it was kind of unrepresented in culture in a certain way. And it, it really does. It's really doing a good thing for. Society. Right. Whereas like whereas in Terminator 1, Schwarzenegger's character looked like a scumbag the whole movie right, right? Like, like he had like this, a leather yeah, it's he like he mugs a bunch of punks yeah, and then scumbags like, and punks versus heroic cops right like yeah. you know that's what action movies were in the 80s and the early 90s and even if the even if it's like die hard and he's not he's kind of a scumbag but he's like a scumbag cop who's a superhero who's doing the best job and all of his friends are cops you know like but i i, I guess i would have to argue that these are sort of um fascist fascistic approaches because you know in the mass sure, shooter yeah. discourse today there's always this idea of like the good guy with the gun and you know terminator is the ultimate example of that like he's literally uh you know only allowed to kill people who are blah 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 you know uh threatening human Just life the bad blah, blah, blah. Guys, like, yeah. exactly exactly you see it with iron man where robert downey jr goes to afghanistan and has some sort of like microchip that helps him differentiate between the actual Taliban and the, uh, you know, innocent, like what a fucking problematic like, movie, right? Like I can, I, I couldn't believe I it like, at the time. I can't imagine how it holds up, but the seeds for that must be here. On the other hand, of course, there's the scene where they're at the like gas station outpost or whatever. Sarah Connor says, miles Dyson. I want to know what he looks like, where he lives, etc." And then it's like, Oh, he's like, uh, African-American gentleman who's like risen high in uh, private enterprise and like has a wife and kids and appears to be a real person. You know, Cameron is kind of like inviting us to re-question our sort of, uh, you know, standbys about like who's in power, what their politics are, what they think, etc. So it's weird, like watching this movie specifically through the lens of the last two years, but also trying to remember like, okay, LA riots were happening at the exact same time. What does Cameron think about that? I still don't know. Because he's he's simultaneously anti-authority, as you guys have pointed out, but he's also like 
you know, if the U.S. military offers James Cameron a fucking helicopter ride, he's going to take it. Like, he's, <laughs> he's always going to be there like, on the bleeding yeah. edge of, like, whatever military industrial complex technology 100%. breakthrough is happening. <laughs> well, I think I think what you're referencing is that like James Cameron is a great example of the sort of like 90s limousine liberal, right? Which yeah. is that like my opinions, my opinions and my beliefs don't necessarily have to dictate where my money comes from and how I work. Like I'm an absolutely like, a, like I'm so dedicated to the environment and I will take a private jet anywhere, you know, like. But 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 like how many. You know, what did what did the filming of T two or of uh you know uh, uh the you know Titanic or Avatar what what's the what's the carbon footprint of something like that? It's probably massive, you know. But uh, yeah, the stories I've heard right about the Avatar movies about him shipping sets around the world and then you know not even using them. It's like oh, a, a huge carbon footprint, absolutely gigantic. It's sort of to the credit of T2 Judgment Day that you don't exit the movie with a really clear ideological read. You know, like it's it's anti-cop, but it's super pro-cop or it's anti-military, but it's super militarized. You know, I mean, because he is shooting a million cops in this movie. Right. But it's sort of like. They're the bad guys. They're, you, they you, you know, and they're the bad guys. But you also know they're just doing their job and they don't understand the situation correctly. Yes, you know? but they're doing it. But again, they kill Dyson, right? Dyson right. is holding like Dyson has made the change to to save to, to save the world. He's going to blow up Skynet with them. Right. And then they shoot him. The first person that they shoot when they walk into Skynet is a black guy. Right. Yeah. And he's, he's, the, just he's, he's like the head there. scientist yeah. of the company. And for all they know, he it's nothing is actually going on. And there's just been some kind of accident or something. And you know what I mean? This is where Terminator Dark Fate kind of failed because there's a sequence in Terminator Fate, Dark Fate, excuse me, where the bad Terminator goes into a a, a border facility, um, like a, a border um, holding facility, a fucking prison camp, <laughs> and like goes in and just starts wasting every border guard in there. And it's in the, it's very similar to, to Schwarzenegger walking into the police precinct in Terminator one. That's it's very similar to that feeling, except the bad Terminator is doing it. So, whereas in Terminator two, the good Terminator is wasting all these cops. Though he doesn't actually apparently kill anybody, right? Because he figures out a way to shoot everything in Terminator 2. So Yeah, he's just shooting he them. This was one of my dad's favorite things. This is like quintessential my dad. is this, There's the thing in Terminator 2 is Edward Furlong says to the Terminator, the cops aren't bad guys. Don't kill them. Just like, just don't kill them, okay? And then Terminator is shooting them all in the knee. And Edward Furlong's like, hey, wait. And the Terminator's like, they'll survive. My dad, he loves- He says that about everybody. He says, don't, you can't kill anybody. Right, 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 and then right. the first person ends up being a guard. So then my with my dad used to like to say, like, well, you know, getting shot in the knee, that's actually very traumatic. And that's like they could very possibly <laughs> die from blood loss from that. And it's it's a very long road back. It's not like you just are fine if you get shot in the knee. <laughs> you know, this is what you're this is like I, we such different upbringings. Yes. Like because my dad would just like laugh hysterically at someone being shot. No, in the this knee is my dad. Like the funniest thing. My dad would kind of sit there quietly with like a like a pissed off look on his face for a minute. And he'd be like, well, you know, it's not like it's good to get shot in the knee. I mean, it's actually very terrible. You know, my dad is like an attorney. He works with people that have injuries and he'd be like, that's just a catastrophic injury. <laughs> you know? They're both right. I mean, 
my dad had seen some kind of combat in Vietnam, and uh, we actually had a conversation about being shot in the knee. He said that's one of the most complicated places you could get shot. You know, yeah. Like whereas if it's your arm, it's like yeah, you'll heal and you get better. But, but the knee, it's like fucked up, man. There's so many moving parts in there. Do you know what I mean? There's a fucking floating bone. Like, are you kidding me? How does that even work? Let me go I back mean... to my let me go back to my T2 Matrix comparison because I really think one of the reasons Matrix was such a huge hit was that they were allowed to like shoot cops in the face with impunity because it's not real. You know, they're just like, like uh, hologram cops or whatever. Like, yeah, well that, I mean, but there's a larger argument about whether or not they are holograms or they are all real. I mean, those, those cops are just as much of holograms as Neo was before Neo left the matrix. Right. right. They're all, they, they are potentially all are all human beings plugged into the energy feeder um, and, and the, and the simulation that is making them think that they are alive. And if they are being killed in the matrix, they are then being killed while plugged into the, the energy in real life, energy of course. Yeah. yeah. In real life. But there is that slight. Uh, like remove. Yeah. Right. Remove that like allows audiences to kind of quickly be like, Oh, it, it doesn't really matter. They can walk into a building and, and, and shoot all these cops. And, Going back to the mass shooter thing, the the Matrix is one of the the big references, I think, for 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 Columbine as well, right? And that whole French sequence where he mafia, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, and the whole sequence where he he and uh, Trinity walk into the 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 corporate building and just start kind of like laying waste to everybody with 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 automatic weapons. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. I've always found that remove for the for the matrix to be, and as much as I love the matrix to be kind of like a having your cake and eating it at the same oh, time. 100%. It never really worked for me. They are executing a lot of people. Yeah. They are committing mass <laughs> yes. murder. I mean, they are mass shooters in the matrix a hundred percent. But the context is, is different, I suppose. Whereas, you know, T2, you're still sort of back in the analog physical world where you're like, there's good guys and there's bad guys. Uh, those who deserve to get shot in the face in an extremely like gruesome fashion will, and everyone else will be fine, basically. You know, and it's a sort of a liberal Cameronism that you can still see, I think, in the Marvel blockbusters of today. You know, like right. I mean, anybody that really gets dies gruesomely is set up to be a bad person in the movie, even if they're killed by the Terminator, right? So, like, the foster parents are very quickly shown to be dicks, right? Right. Though I don't think they're that bad. <laughs> they just seem like I mean, but then, they're out of touch. Edward Furlong is a bad kid, and he's behaving badly, you know, and he should he deserves to be punished, you know. Right. She comes in and she's like, "I've had it up to here with that goddamn kid. He won't clean his room." And the guy's like a lazy fucking dick, and he's like, "Get in there and do what she says. Clean your room, man." And then Edward Furlong is like, "Fuck off!" And Storms is like, "They're they're not that bad, it's, but it like seems pretty regular, somehow, yeah." Yeah, somehow tonally it makes sense for us to be okay with them getting totally murdered two <laughs> scenes later. Literally murdered. You know, exactly. Um, and then there's everybody in the hospital, which are like their setup, which should be like okay for them to all be killed. And that's really it in terms of actual murders in the movie, right? Because then it's all like, oh, and Dyson. But Dyson is a tragedy. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, everybody else is just like a cop that gets shot in the knee or like a, you know, a helicopter that crashes or whatever, you know. So in that way, 
it is a, a a blueprint for another element of the of 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 the blockbuster of the future, which is that they are painless. No one not like no one who isn't guilty gets hurt. Well, this is supposedly right? or at least you don't see it on the screen. You could argue that like with the comic book movies, people who aren't guilty get hurt all the time because they're just destroy they're just destroying cities. Right, but right. it's just but like, like in the background, you're not really supposed to think about that. Right, you're not seeing innocent people just get like shot to death which i miss in movies i that does sound like you ricky i mean well this is supposedly one of schwarzenegger's big problems with the script of this movie and that he had to have all these meetings with james cameron and get talked into it is that he was like i'm the fucking terminator i don't terminate anybody like what nobody's gonna believe this like i'm famous i'm the terminator i kick in the door and i shoot everybody that's what i do and i in this movie i'm like what i got like a little kid that i'm protecting like what are you out of your fucking mind you know but James Cameron was just as ever, you know, a certain kind of visionary. And he's like, no, 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 we can totally make it work. It's going to be great. Everybody's going to love it. It's going to be huge, you know, and he was definitely 100% right. So there's three questions that we ask at the end of every uh, episode. They're um, pretty simple. Um, the first one is, what was your favorite part of the movie? Do you have a favorite part of the movie, Steve? There are so many iterations of this movie that it's hard to be sure what movie we're talking about. But across all of them, my favorite part is the Sarah Connor dream sequence. Because without that, there's, you know, you lose all hope of any emotional connection to not just the first Terminator, but also like the Cold War, the threat of nuclear annihilation, this kind of like pre-internet vision of like... uh, human rationality, you run amok. I mean, the, you know, just to be blunt, like the image of the skeleton uh, shaking the chains on the chain link fence, screaming while the uh, mushroom cloud is going or whatever, like that's, that's probably, maybe I'm old school, but to me that's as iconic an image as Cameron has ever given us. You know, even pre, even post-Titanic, post-Avatar, like that's still... That's what the movie is really about. And that creates this emotional feeling of like, okay, fuck, the future of humanity is at stake. I guess I should, in fact, ride along with this human cyborg, whatever, you know. So favorite is like a weird word to use to describe what I just said. But that is, to me, that's like the movie in a nutshell is like, why does this movie exist? Why does this movie matter? Why does this movie still resonate with people who weren't alive in the early 90s? You know, I'm going to point to that sequence for my answers to those kinds of questions. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think we've already kind of said this, but I think that the th- when you talk to a person who's seen this movie a bunch of times, usually people say the things that are their favorite parts are like Asa La Vista Baby or, you know, the T-1000 doing things or the emotional power of of edward furlong and and schwarzenegger's characters and and those performances but i don't think any of those things would resonate as well as they do if your favorite part wasn't a piece of the of the movie and i kind of said this at the beginning of the movie but it is the the element of this that most blockbusters don't have now which is the the bravery to be really ugly and mean while at the same time telling a kind of a, a, a broad emotional story they don't recognize that like that ugly meanness gives the broad emotional story a a lot of weight and in a blockbuster movie you are usually inherently telling a violent story 
Well, so you like shying away from the violence just loses all stakes. Well, that's I mean, the, the thing. The stakes, exactly what you're saying, Ricky. Like in a in a modern blockbuster, they try to establish stakes by like showing a space monster eating a glowing orb, right? And you're supposed to be like, oh no, if he if he finishes eating the orb, then the whole universe is going to cease to exist. But in this movie, they establish these kind of stakes by showing like a really ugly death that's like scary to watch. And you as the viewer just think like, oh, no, I don't want that to happen to me. That seems awful, <laughs> you know. And it's so much more effective emotionally and, you know, in a storytelling sense, because it just hits you like in, in a really primal way. And you're just like, ah, oh, no, you know. Well, I mean, uh, uh, I think it was Ricky brought up the the. the lbj daisies ad it was me thank you very much steve i, oh, I brought up a, if it was something smart that has to do with history i brought it up 100 percent. perils of podcasting oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh yeah the daisy ad is a real esoteric historical reference oh yeah sure. i didn't see you bringing right, it up right. genius <laughs> well i mean i'm day to day i'm surrounded by people who have no idea that this commercial ever aired let alone you know influence t2 but you know, T2 is kind of like the feature length exploration of that idea of, uh, you know, we're on the brink of nuclear uh, holocaust, uh, atomic annihilation, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, I think Cameron probably in the private sector working for Hollywood found a way to make it personal for people that is ideological. But as we discussed about 20 minutes ago, very confused, you know, so right. I don't know, like. I would definitely program, if I was ever going to show T2, it's like what I show the theatrical cut, the director's cut, the high-res remaster of the digital scan of the 35mm print of the theatrical, I don't know. but I would, I would show that if I was going to, if I was going to show anyone this movie, I would show that 35mm scan. There's... I think it would too, honestly. But with the Daisy commercial beforehand, right? Because yeah. this is just like a little a little further into that idea, even though it's bleak as hell. And you should show, you should show that it's, can you show that it's spectacle or is that something that like rights wise, you would just get totally fucked. There's no way to, uh, show we, you know, I mean, it would probably be like, I mean, secret, secret. <laughs> Karolko is interesting. Like, right. Artisan Karolko, like these, we can have a whole other conversation about these boom bust um, international co-financing sort of mega conglomerates that came together in the nineties and didn't really survive the transition to digital. Uh, Paul Verhoeven was supposed to make a movie with Karolko called crusade starring Schwarzenegger, uh. um, which was going to be the most expensive film ever made before Titanic. But Karolko went belly up because of uh, cutthroat Island. Right? Cutthroat Island. Island. Yeah. Rennie Harlan, if I'm not mistaken. Well, so, this is which why Tarantino, Tarantino was recently boasting about on a podcast, saying that Cutthroat Island is actually like a pretty great movie that everybody should go back and watch, which I, I've never seen it. So I've I don't, seen I don't it know more than true. once, and I like that kind of bullshit, and I'll say it's fine. It's really not all that good. It's really not that good. <laughs> it's neither exceptional nor like the most miserable piece of shit you ever saw in your life, right? It's probably like yeah, somewhere in between. Like, yeah. It's like a Zorro I, movie or something. You know, It's like fine. I don't know. I think it's I think his take on it was that like the it's all practical effects. It's all these boats that they built. It's all these like real sets that they built that uh, that is what's so yeah, thrilling. Okay. About and it. there's like real ropes, you know, like 
<laughs> but I mean, you're talking about Karolko. I mean, that's why this movie exists, right? It's Karolko decided they wanted to do a sequel to Terminator. So they bought, spent a huge amount of money to get the rights. And then they spent a huge amount of money to get James Cameron to do it. And then he promised everybody else a bunch of money, you know? And like, that's why Terminator 2 happened. <laughs> yeah, but so my favorite part of the movie, Ricky, I mean, talking about the um the ugliness of the movie and this is actually something i wanted to say about the 38 millimeter scan you guys were talking about because you were saying ricky what how it does such a good job of establishing this like atmosphere of violence and unpredictability that is kind of not present in the um digital version and and what really struck me because the only the only clip i watched was the scene of arnold like walking through the biker bar at the beginning which in a lot of ways is one of like the cheesiest worst parts of the movie you know um, but even that sequence, which is so stupid and TV show, uh, and it kind of sticks out in the film, uh, in the 38 millimeter version, it's like, it's very dark and that really helps it seem like menacing in some way. Like the idea that like, cause the joke of that scene is like, oh, Arnold is going to get the shit kicked out of him by these bikers. So that's what they think. Cause he's naked and he's some weirdo, but like, they don't know he's Arnold Schwarzenegger and like, he's the Terminator. But like that works on some level. Like I don't think it's great, but I think in the 38 millimeter it works kind of. Um, but anyway, no, my favorite part is um, we talked about this, but, but just talking about the ugliness of the movie. One of the things that stuck with me my entire life is the scene I talked about previously, which is the like the um, T1000 stabbing the foster dad through the milk carton through his mouth and then into the wall. And it was, and it pans along the knife up to the milk carton, which is dripping milk up to yep. his mouth. And he's kind of gagging and it's going through his mouth in this kind of complicated, extremely realistic way that it's like the exact correct tra trajectory from the wife, like through the milk carton, through his mouth. And he's, it just looks so real and he's reacting in this way where he's very surprised and he's like bleeding to death. And that used to scare me so much. And I used to think about it all the time. Like half the time I drank something, I would imagine like, Oh, what if a knife came like straight through my mouth right now? Like, what would that be like? And I, I, it's stuck in my brain for like the rest of my life. And it's so beautifully done. And yeah, this is, they talk about this in the, the article. Like there were three different models of the arm, the actor who was playing this, the foster dad practiced sword swallowing for two weeks because they had to put these prosthetics like pretty far right, down his throat right. in yeah. order to get the shot correct. And it's like, it's just so well done. It's so great. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, like have, I have a very similar favorite part, which I feel like both of our favorite parts are like kind of base compared to uh, Steve's. Yeah, right. But mine is in the hospital when the um, T-1000 points his finger through the other oh, through the guard's yeah. eye and it goes through the back of his head. And uh, those are actual two, those are actual twins that are doing that shot in the same way, which we didn't bring up, oh, but yeah. like a number of shots in the movie are Linda Hamilton's actual twin, which is great, which is, is wild. And I, I saw recently um, it's, it's in an extended scene, but a shot where the shot where Linda Hamilton is pulling the microchip out of Schwarzenegger's head and they're in a mirror. There was no actual mirror there. What they did was they used a double for Schwarzenegger, so it's just the back of his head, and the camera moves around, and what looks like a mirror is actual, actually Linda Hamilton's twin, like, in a frame. Yeah, it's like working on Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, There's way Hamilton. more of this in the director's cut, right? Like, the director's cut is yeah. all about this kind of, like, <laughs> sequence that Cameron kind of, like, pulled out all the stops on, and, you know. Yeah, 
kind of um, but my favorite part electrical my favorite part is the 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 guy pointing his finger through the head simply because for me as a six-year-old seeing that um i didn't know at the time but that had to have been my introduction to gore mm, and to like right. practical effect gore which i became obsessed with and I became obsessed with horror movies when I was in middle school and in high school. And even still now, like I, I, I really enjoy practical effects and I really enjoy when something is particularly gory. And I, I think it has to have to do with having seen that at such a young age and just being totally floored that someone would go, that it, that a movie would go that far and be that disgusting. Um, because it is even now, even watching it now, it is like a pretty disgusting effect. And it doesn't look so like anything you would see in a movie now. Gross out stuff, like yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it does. You know, it establishes like, the T one thousand as being a scary person who will kill you in a way you won't expect. That is really bad. You know. This so uh, this movie came out thirty years ago. Uh, a lot has changed since then. I feel like the majority of this podcast in regards to this movie has been this. But obviously, we as a culture have grown out a lot of a lot of things that this movie does. So, what is something for you that we have grown out of since this movie came out? Yeah, I mean, usually this is the place where we talk about something sexist or you know racist that that the movie has done uh, that we like don't really see anymore in modern films. And there is a lot of that stuff usually in a in a movie that that we talk about or something something about the worldview of the film that is like just so changed from then to now. Um, and so I, 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 but sometimes it's a positive answer also just things that we don't, we just literally just don't exist anymore in, in filmmaking. And like you were saying, Ricky, that's so much of what we, what we've been talking about. So I guess my two answers on those, on those fronts would be like something that's like part of a, a an unquestioned worldview that has completely changed is like, I, I just like the idea in in Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, that when uh, machines become self-aware, the first thing that they will do is, like, detonate nuclear bombs. Like, I don't know. That's a very, like, mid to late 80s thing for machines to do. Like, that's, like, the first thing that they do. They do it within, like, 20 minutes of becoming sentient, is they detonate all nuclear bombs, you know? as Kill like, all just humans. Yeah. You kill all humans, and it's with nuclear weapons. And it's actually, like, Skynet launches the U.S. weapons at Russia, so that then Russia will send their weapons back at us. And it's, like... And you're like, what is this fucking war games? Like, okay, all right. That's what the all powerful machines want to do. These like the smartest creatures who sent this liquid metal monster back in time. Like this is, they're fixated on shooting missiles at people. All right. Yeah. Okay. Sure. What, what do the machines do in her when they, when they become sentient? Like, what do they do? They just like float into the yeah, right. atmosphere or something, right? Yeah, they're what like Dr. They Manhattan. They're like sick of human entanglements, you know, and they just float off, you know? Oh, God, right. Something like that. Yeah, so like right. that's that side of it. And on the other side of it is sort of a positive answer. I mean, and this is, we've been talking about this a lot, but just, you know, there th this idea of a big summer blockbuster as coming from the singular vision of a person who like wrote yeah. the script and the notes for the script and then directed it themselves. And like that, that kind of idea, it's not long for this world at, at this point, right? Like you're saying, Ricky, all the blockbusters today, I mean, it sounds like we're like old person belly aching, but like we both work in the entertainment industry. Like, yeah, 
they are literally it's like committees on committees on committees and they have like it all has to do with their corporations and blah 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 it's well there's only one person who can who can do that now right or maybe two right it's james cameron and quentin tarantino Right. And Steven Spielberg. But even James Spielberg Cameron doesn't like, want to make. He's working for. He has this whole thing with Disney where they have theme parks and a hundred movies, and obviously he's in charge. But it's also a part of a whole Disney thing, you know. Sure, but I mean, he had that with T two as well. There were very quickly plans for T two rides and T yeah. two. You know, there was a marketing machine behind T two, but the difference was, I think, then the marketing machine got started after the movie was was done. People saw the movie and were like, "Okay, this is what we can do with this." In the sense that, like, like people seem to like this. Like, I guess we could do something with it instead of it being like all done way, way, way ahead of time. The Guns and Roses song that's layered into the movie beautifully was not um, decided upon until after the movie was shot. Right. Yeah. Um, there's a great so that, yeah, there's crucial a great story detail, there. honestly. Like Yeah. It's layered in. Like I, I didn't I had always thought growing up that like that song was uh like chosen beforehand, but because it's layered in very well, but it, it, yeah, it turns out according to that ringer oral history, not at all. Um, but yeah, what about you, Ricky? What do you think we've grown out of? Um, I mean mine is is, is pretty lame, but like I just don't think you would get, with the exception of a Quentin Tarantino movie, you would get a summer blockbuster where your main female character is, it is alluded to the idea that she is being routinely sexually assaulted in the institution that she's being kept. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, yeah. It is, that is so fucking dark. And the only other movie on this close to this budget level that i can think of to do that is kill bill right um yeah yeah and that's basically like a reference to this in some ways right it's yeah and it's it's, also kind of a joke in kill bill right like it's it's very tarantino-y and it's like he's referencing b movies and being sort of silly whereas in this it's like no like shit really dark shit is happening in this place and it's fucking this woman up. It's deeply unfortunate that I am the one to ask this question, but have you guys seen uh sucker punch by Zack Snyder? <laughs> I have. Oh, yes. I've only seen part of it. I haven't seen, because I haven't seen has, that much of it. It has a similar along with like uh the fall by Tarsim. There's a similar like hospital bed, uh dramaturgy of like, did it really happen? Was it all a dream? Is it just a hallucination? Is this person being abused by hospital staff? You know, T2 could be the origin text for that kind of cliche. Like, are you saying without T2, we wouldn't have sucker punch? Well, <laughs> I mean, I think that's true in some way. I think yeah. that's very true. Well, but, okay, I guess I guess it turns out I'm against T2. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to changing my mind now. Well, what about like a Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahul? You know, like, is there going to be a 30 <laughs> years later in, I guess that's like 2041, uh, that you'll be recording that podcast Can't episode? Wait. Can't like, wait. Yeah. No, Can't but... wait for the Owls of Kahulisance. Like, I want to... To, to your point about uh, super fucked up things that are kind of normalized and not talked about yet normalized at the same time, um, you know, Cameron always involves like family, personal stuff with his movies, right? Like he's dating the person who's also his executive producer. He's married to the person who also co-wrote the screenplay. There's like a Bigelow, Hamilton, Gail Ann Hurd, you know, like 
the Cameron mythos involves uh, collaborating with women and breaking up with them, yet remaining with them romantically while the movie gets finished. So how that interfaces with T1 and T2, all the stuff that you talk about, Ricky, like, yeah, it definitely would not happen in a current modern day blockbuster, but it's like some measure of redemption was supposed to come through dark fate. I think like dark fate, their big coup was getting Linda Hamilton back in terms of like this female perspective on the Terminator franchise. I don't know. Like, what do you guys think? Like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I know that was supposed to be the big thing of dark fate. And I mean, I will say like, I didn't, we haven't talked a lot about Lyndall Hamilton because it's like, to me, it seems like such an entry level thing to talk about, about this movie. But I mean, you do have to say like so much of this movie, it rests on Linda Hamilton's performance and her physicality obviously is so, you know, mind bogglingly influential in this movie. Like the way that she is this complete muscular badass, you know, we talked about the matrix and, uh, matrix got a lot of 20th anniversary sort of like, uh, trance reconsideration, but Linda, Linda Hamilton and, um, you know, Ed Furlong, like this movie set the template for a lot of people, I think, in terms of like Robert Patrick, he can't trust Schwarzenegger, he can't trust. But that relationship between actress and actor uh, Linda, Linda Hamilton and Edward Furlong, I was like, yeah, that's a quintessential relationship of 90s cinema, like that mother, that kid, like that people were able to read all kinds of relationships into that. You know, the end of the movie, the actual butt end of the movie before the credits, the credits are about five minutes long, is just this weird image of the uh, the yellow line on the, I guess, state freeway, right? And it, it, it kind of keeps like vibing from left to right to left to right. It almost becomes avant-garde. I always appreciated that, that it had a very humble, like final image, that it was like, uh, you know. Yeah, at the end of the day, this movie was shot in California. Um, <laughs> budgetary restrictions are what they are. You know, like, yeah, right. T3, T3 was such an impossible promise that they kind of fucked it up by even having one because the end of T2 is so open-ended that it could accommodate anything. And when T3 actually came out, it was like, oh, great. Now we actually have to revise, like, what does this mean? Who are these people? What actually was Skynet? What is self-awareness, et cetera? So you know. tiresome, right? It's so tiresome. Yeah, yeah. And, and now they do it, they do it with every movie. They do that with every movie. Yeah. Every Terminator movie. And it's and why? Why this is not the thing we care about. This is like how in every Batman movie we have to spend five minutes watching Bruce Wayne's parents get killed. It's like this isn't what we have come to the Batman movie for. You know, we don't have to do this right now. Well, I think the difference between like Batman and Terminator is like what we come to the Terminator movies for because the first two movies are so good and carry uh, a real weight to them. It's really hard to duplicate that as like a multiverse or as like, you know, just these just these sort of like fun sequels that barely touch on the seriousness of the originals or don't really know how don't have the courage to do it because the first two are. Um, you you just really can't build upon those. Like it's like you said at the beginning of this podcast. If there's a finality to Terminator Two, there was gonna be, and now it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the last question of the podcast is, you know, because we started this thirty years later podcast uh, in 1990, um, it seems that every movie we talk about will be during the 90s if we make it into the the aughts, um, barring any of our you know, fun 
digressions that we haven't done yet, but are definitely planning to do to have to be able to break out of this decade every now and then. Um, what is the most nineties thing about this movie? Chris, do you want to go? Yeah, sure. I mean, nineties thing about this movie. I mean, I got two big things that I want to say. Um, one of them is the appearance with this. I had totally forgotten about the appearance of Danny Cooksey as John Connor's friend. He is of yeah, course, Bud Nick from salute your shorts. He has several lines in this movie with his fucking red mullet, like riding a dirt bike. I was like, Oh my God, I love this guy. He's so good. <laughs> like that's so fucking nineties that Danny Cooksey is John Connor's dirt bag friend. <laughs> Your foster parents are kind of dicks, huh? <laughs> God, and he looks like such a piece of shit. He looks he like does he does that amazing thing when they pull away from the foster parents' place and the mo- on the on the dirt bike where he holds his boombox up high. Yes, like the Guns and Roses. It's so fucking badass. Yes, he's playing his boombox while they ride off on a dirt bike. It's playing Guns and Roses. Yeah, it layered into the movie, as you said, Ricky, <laughs> playing "You Could Be Mine." I wonder what that what Danny Cooksey's life after T2 looks looked like versus what Edward Furlong's looked like for some reason because Danny Cooksey in the movie has the mullet and looks like and ha- was on this bad kids show and looks like he would have like a bad child actor's life whereas like Furlong had that <laughs> Pretty, yeah yeah i mean judging just judging from what the stuff he said in the oral history dan because he like kind of seems to have his head screwed on straight and he seems to be like kind of a normal adult so like maybe he avoided all that stuff question mark you know uh, but yeah furlong, the other... furlong on the other hand i was watching an interview with uh today from recently where he was saying over and over again that he would suck dick to play john connor again <laughs> Yeah. Said he said, Hey man, if someone said, Here's some mouthwash, flush it out and suck my dick, you can play John Connor. I'm ready. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that's but like, like too specific. And that's yes. like... Nick Stahl, Christian Bale, uh Edward Furlong. I mean, John Connor is all of us, really. You know. Yeah, we are all John Connor. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's true. Um, my other nineties thing would have to be, and this is something James Cameron himself called out as being kind of dated and something that clangs is that the first introduction of Arnold in this movie, they're playing bad to the bone. (laughs) Yeah. Or no, I guess that's at the end after he's done the bar fight thing and he's wearing all the leather and he's about to get on the motorcycle. They're playing bad to the bone as they pan up Arnold in his biker gear. And it's just like, so fucking cringe. So cringe. Problem child did it the year before. I know problem child did it a year before. (laughs) like what are you doing but whatever i mean it's a it's a i know what he's doing it's a 95 it's the most expensive movie ever ever made any chance you can find a moment to play to the cheap seats fucking do it you know like that's what he's doing in that and in that sequence we'll play bad to the bone he'll he'll ride a motorcycle it'll be real cool you know like can't let you take the man's wheels son uh also in that scene the guy that he takes the clothing from, who he initially, you know, the cigar smoking guy that he walks up to, says, I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. That's a guy by the name of Robert Winley, who is in Near Dark, Catherine Bigelow's uh, vampire movie from a oh, few years really? before, right. where he's 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 the shit kicker in the bar in the massacre, the bar massacre. And he's a plays a biker in Stone Cold, the Brian Bosworth B movie from a couple of years later. 
And uh, he he also plays. I don't know. I just I, I I he's a face that I recognize from this period of time in movies. He also plays um, John Voight's character in the television uh, Heat movie, L.A. Takedown. He plays Nate. You know, it's a oh, free country, really? brother. Damn. Yeah, and 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 there's another uh, L.A. Takedown actor in this, which is Xander Berkeley, who plays Wayne Grow in L.A. Right. Takedown. Right. Yeah. God, anyway, <laughs> what do you think the most '90s part of the movie was, Ricky? Um, it's really hard because Terminator Two to me represents the '90s as a whole. Like it's the it 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 just feels like it's the beginning of the '90s, and then it's all everybody thought about in the night, like throughout the '90s. Yeah. Like it just was always talked about. It was never not being watched. You know, it wasn't something that faded away. There's a ton of movies like that in the '90s because movies had a longer shelf life then. Um, so I, I find it really hard. Um, I will say, and maybe this is a cheap answer. I think it, I think it's Edward Furlong. Um, he didn't really have a career post 1999. Um, you know, like I think Pecker is 99 or American history X is 99. And that's really the end of him. Um, it's after that, that he becomes, you know, 2003 is when he lost the, he lost the, the part for rise of the machines because he OD'd beforehand, which he also states in this interview when it's brought up why he wasn't in rise of the machines. He goes, Oh, because I OD'd man. And I couldn't get insured. <laughs> like, you know, he was done after 2000. I think that's, that's all. That's rough, dude. That's yeah. Just, it's an amazing cool. interview. He really needs to be cast as like a bar fly in a movie, like remake trees lounge and put Edward oh Furlong in there somewhere. Oh um, God but we were talking about this before the, the, before we started recording Chris and like when, when dark fate, right. That's the newest one. That's what it's called. Dark fate. Yeah. 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 When that was coming out, they mocapped him for a day to put him in, to put him in the movie. And there was a whole like, um, effort to cancel him because, uh, he's in, he's or canceled the movie and cancel him because they put him in it. Um, because he has some like domestic violence charges, against him and um you know continuing in the path of the last episode which is saying things that might get us canceled i guess i will just say that like that attempt to 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 cancel him or at least like try to say that the filmmakers were irresponsible for giving this guy a job i found um extremely uh hateful and i uh, uh and 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 not very thoughtful about who this person is and their 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 addictions and their their drug problems and the ideas of second chances and you know if he was a mechanic and 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 he had gone to jail for 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 heroin addiction and domestic violence charges when he got out you wouldn't stop this man from being a mechanic he's an actor and like this is how he makes his money and he's what been he a heroin yeah he's been a heroin and crack addict for like 25 years you know like of course he's going to have like pretty intense relationships with people, you know, that's like no excuse for any kind of domestic violence, but I'm pretty sure like if you talk to most people who are addicted to crack and heroin, they weren't in the most loving relationships. They weren't the most loving towards other people while they were strung out. And it just felt to me like this, like maybe he's not a good guy. You know, maybe he's always entirely possible. He's not a good guy. Yeah, Entirely possible. He's not a good person at all, but the cancellation of this man being like, oh, domestic violence charges was like, but 
he's clearly a troubled soul. What yeah. you're leaving a lot out here to suddenly be like he shouldn't be allowed to be get one day of work in I this movie. Watching, he had one day right, of yeah. motion capture work, right? Like he shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, I was watching Clute the other day because it's on HBO Max right now. And there's a scene where Jane Fonda, they're, you know, they're investigating this disappearance and they go to visit this woman. Jane Fonda is like a you know sex worker, a prostitute in the movie, call girl. And she used to, she goes up, looks up her friend that was a call girl. And so, because to ask her some questions and they get there and it's like her and the guy are completely addicted to heroin. They're like sobbing the entire time. And they spend the whole scene saying to her and, um, what's his face? Who is it that's in that movie? Uh, Donald. Donald Sutherland, Donald Sutherland to her and to Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland. They're like, Oh, our heroin dealer's coming and he's going to get weirded out. If, if he comes and you you're here, like you got to get out of here. And then their heroin dealer does come and he gets weirded out and runs away and they run after him and they come back and they're just like sobbing and screaming at each other. And then they're just like hugging each other and they're like screaming at that Jane Fonda. And it's like, yeah, that's what Edward Furlong's life is like. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, at some point, one of them could have been charged with like lots of different crimes, but like in general, the, the, this is what he's going through in his life. Yeah, and I just saw that as an example of like that so much of our culture is dictated by people with like zero life experience or openness to the right. experiences, both negative and positive that like people go through. And that this expectation that everybody is sort of like living on some sort of flat plateau that like is both like morally accessible and advisable and not actually filled. And, and if they're not a clear victim, of some right. kind, then they're not in any way. Uh, they 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 don't got they they're they're not they don't garner any sympathy. There's no sympathy for them or empathy in, in any way. And again, he may be a piece of shit who's sober or not is awful. He's also a child actor who was in one of the biggest movies ever and was pampered for ten years of his life, and that might be a huge part of it as well. But I just remember, like, you know, that's a tangent based off of just the idea that he's the most '90s part of the movie. For me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and to add to that, and to add to that, oh in terms God. of the '90s output of uh, of Edward Furlong, go back and if, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen James Gray's first film, Little Odessa, starring Edward Furlong and Tim Roth, you must. It's a it's an it's an incredible film. Incredible. And also watch also watch Pecker, which is a, a fine John Waters movie. And you know, watch American History X if you want to. I have my own problems with that movie, but it's got it's got a power to it and it's got a one of the better edward norton performances um and also i like brain scan the first the first movie um made uh of a oh, andrew yeah. kevin walker script right andrew kevin walker who wrote seven brain scan for me when i saw that in fifth grade i was like it blew my fucking mind it doesn't hold up that well but as a fifth grader it was pretty amazing anyway what do you think <laughs> the most 90s loud. part of the movie is steve back in back in 92 I wished I was Edward Furlong. Like he was like the golden child, like this sort of like amazing, you know, kid star persona. Yet at the same time, uh, going into the reporting of this podcast, I was like, I'm super ignorant about what the fuck happened to him after this movie. I assumed this movie destroyed his life. And, you know, as a nine year old, like his life was never his own after Terminator two, just day, you know, like it feels like, uh, this was funny. Can I just interrupt to say I, I all had a similar thought, Steve, and I said to Ricky, like, 
oh, you know, he never really did anything like at this level again. And Ricky went, what are you talking about? He was in brain scan. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, all right. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, it's sort of one of these instances, not maybe, arguably, DiCaprio has gotten out from under the thumb of Titanic. But for a long time, people were like, yeah, but is he a leading man? You know, in terms of like, you cast this child actor in this iconic role and they're never going to be able to get around it. You know, um, Altman apparently allegedly warned Bud Court about Harold and Maude. Like, if you do this movie, it'll be great, but that's the only thing people are going to think about you for the rest of your life. And that's kind of what happened, you know? Uh, so I sort of see, you know, Furlong is like the Bud Court to Harold and Maude's uh, T-1000. It's like, uh, I don't know, like, they sacrificed so much. I'm sure he, you know, had a horrible life, and I'm sure that his horrible life led him to become an abuser, and I'm sure that that was a problem when they made Dark Fate. But, like, you know, mostly when I would go back and rewatch something uh, 30 years later, rewatching the movie, I felt bad for him. I didn't feel judgmental. It was not judgment day for me. I was like, oh, wow. Imagine being nine years old, acting in like the biggest movie in human history. And of course, as a result of that, you're, you're going to become a heroin addict. You're going to become a crack addict, you know. But these are the things that hindsight only gives you, you know, through the rearview mirror. Like at the time, the earnestness and the sincerity of T2 Judgment Day is like, you know, you can feel it when you're watching the movie, when you're watching the digital scan of the 35 millimeter rip you know so well the thing is is that he was also found like in a boys club he wasn't like a young actor he was like kind of found by a casting director on the street and like from what i understand based off of that ringer article and i'm paraphrasing here when she approached him and was like do you want to audition for a movie he was basically like Like, what do you you like what are you a pervert <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You know, like he, he had like, some like, real said, life experience already. He yeah. said that his reply was like, "What do you want, frog lips?" <laughs> yeah, like, amazing, amazing shit. So I think, like, you know, and and it's not said enough what it's like for child actors on the set of movies, and like, I I, I think people think like oh, it must be so demanding for them. It's like, it's not that. It's that there are people constantly at their beck and call treating them like adults and asking them what they want and like at their, at at their, like at their beck and call. And so therefore like it's an, it's an insane reality to, 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 to give them and to the point where James Cameron says in this making of that I watched and it's really irresponsible of him he's talking about casting Edward Furlong he's like oh lots of people say that it's hard with, to work with children but the thing is is that it's so easy to work with children because they just adapt to this reality so easily children can just adapt to anything and it's like okay well what happens when they have to face an actual reality you're kind of fucking them up and it, you know there's nothing I can say that hasn't already been said about it but Edward Furlong is one of the biggest examples of, of that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that, the you know, uh, we were talking about Fast and Furious earlier. Um, I have not seen the new one, but Fast 8, which now feels like a decade ago, but it was actually about three years. I was like, you know, okay, someone had a baby. 
this is the big twist at the end of the film. It's like the fast, the furious and the little lady, you know, like they're really branching out in terms of like trusting people to give a shit about these characters ability to have children. Fine. T2 is kind of the best case example of you take a pre-existing intellectual property, you take a franchise and you add a kid. Usually the kid is the death knell for the whole idea, but this is the one time when it actually kind of worked out where having a child be the main character sort of gave this like neutral protagonist uh, POV that allowed the story to be as crazy as it yeah. wanted to be, you know. Like, like how did they successfully add a sassy kid to this IP and it works so perfectly? You know what I mean? I no, know, like, I know exactly how. Like they went for a grounded reality in 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 some way. I mean, it sounds silly to contribute to say attribute that idea to this movie, but like it's he's a foster kid. His mother tried to blow up a computer lab. She's in a mental asylum. He knows how to steal money out of an ATM. He's a little he's a little brat, you know? Like he he's we get the sense that he's bounced from home to home to home and now these parents can't can't stand him and all he wants to do is ride his motorbike around and steal money and play video games. Like the movie invests very quickly in him being like in why he's sassy. He's not just like suddenly like a suburban kid who is like a smart ass in some way, which is what kind of the IRL Bart Simpson. Like it's sort of, you know, you're looking for analog. (laughs) Yes. Yes. He is Edward. John Connor is Bart Simpson, but he's got more, but he, but they establish more reason for him to be Bart Simpson, right? Bart Simpson is the version of that. We still get now, which is like, comes from a fan like is is it still in a nuclear family and like is a smart ass whereas john connor we very quickly established that he's from a really broken home he's probably not just been in foster homes he's been in group homes he's been in foster care you know like he's it, it, life has mom treated is him locked well. in a psychiatric hospital getting raped by the staff you know like yes exactly you know? <laughs> the movie does consistently does a good job of establishing why these characters are the, the the way that they are because it's not afraid of making their their backstory or their current story pretty ugly right yeah um so steve what's what's the most 90s thing about this movie for you okay so <clears throat> um thinking back to the very first thing we talked about which is how we each individually access this film even if you were not allowed to see t2 in theaters or at home because it was r-rated let's say you knew the tropes from the special effects demo reel that was in all of the like behind the scenes slash how did this get made slash where is technology going kind of like uh like alan alda on pbs is exactly exactly like t2 was the bleeding edge of digital technology before jurassic park And so the like polymorphism of the LAPD, uh, Robert Patrick character, T2000, T1000, that became this weird like parallel to where could digital technology take us, you know? So it's kind of like every story about, about computers. It's like, this was the image they're showing is like Robert Patrick walking through the cell bars, you know? Yeah. 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 A seemingly unrelated news story about personal computer technology would still have to include a clip from T2, like just as a weird, you know, uh, contractual obligation. So to me, it really is this moment of like promise and also of, uh, heartbreak, I guess. I mean, 
maybe the heartbreak is on the furlong side and the promise is on the ILM side, but it's like, this is where, you know, cinema is going like this protoplasmic ectomorphic, uh, shape-shifting quicksilver could be, you know, you don't know what it's going to be. You have to keep watching it. You know, this, this was kind of like a trope that was shoved down my throat all throughout the nineties. Well, before I actually sat down and watched the movie Terminator two judgment day from start to finish, I already had seen like most of the major beats in these kind of like sizzle reel behind the scenes. I don't know. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, of course. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, this is something we talk about a lot on the show is the way these movies, like movies like T2 just became a part of all culture. And I love you bringing up these, like the future of technology things because yeah, that was such a big thing. And this movie was in all of that stuff. And yeah, it just, whether or not you had seen it, you knew everything about it, you know, and that, that isn't necessarily the same these days. I mean, even a movie like Avengers Endgame where it's like, yeah, okay, you see Captain America on a poster. It's not the same thing. You know, it's not, it's not like you're seeing bits from it all the time and everything you do and everywhere you go in the same way that, that it would happen at, at this time. I, at least I don't think. Yeah. You guys are also reminding me that, uh, the other 90s thing about this movie is catchphrases, oh, right? Sure. Like that for 10 years after everybody was saying, whether they'd seen the movie or not, was saying, hasta la vista, baby. I'll be back. Right. Yeah, right. I'll be back. Hasta la vista, baby. Like it, that was a very particular thing in the 90s, I think. I right. mean, maybe that's just because that's when I grew up. But like the ubiquity of movies at that point, the mass marketing of them had made it so that like whether people had seen the movie or not, they'd seen the catchphrase somewhere and they were saying it. And for whatever reason, it was cool to just repeat catchphrases from movies all the time. Like, you know, Shagadelic or, 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 yeah. or whatever, the but like T2 it on home improvement, you know, like that kind of, yeah. Thing. Like T2 was one of them. Austin powers was one of them. And there was a, you know, a few others as well, but they were the two. I, if I remember correctly, I feel like they were the two big ones of the nineties that had catchphrases that everybody was saying all the time. So like you asked me the most nineties thing about this movie, you know, my answer is like a list of cliches or uh, catchphrases or ticks or tropes that like constituted some idea of this movie in my mind as a small child before I had actually watched it. And to me, that like marketing campaign is the most 90s thing about T2 Judgment Day. Yes. I mean, Ricky, I think Steve is pointing to something very interesting, which is like you ask what is the most 90s thing about the movie. In fact, Terminator 2 is the 90s. Essentially. Mm, essentially, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I would I would agree with that. It's kind of the beginning. I mean, it's not really the beginning. We talked about this with Dick Tracy. Like the marketing right. campaign behind Dick Tracy was <laughs> baffling because it was promoted like this next big Disney product, but it was Dick Tracy. <laughs> it like what? Like it was just was not this thing that in 1990 everyone was like, oh my God, thank God they're making a Dick Tracy movie. I've been <laughs> waiting for that. Well, yeah, but they treated it character that way. from the funny papers. Finally, in, in the current, you know, modern moment hellscape of like intellectual property, uh, uh, zombification, you should look up, um, you know, Warren Beatty still owns the rights to Dick Tracy. Are and, you about to bring up the, the interview where he did? Where yes. He, he, Yes. Fucking unbelievable. The Dick Tracy film from 2010 or whatever it's called. Like one of the craziest things ever, ever created in my opinion. I mean, I mean, 
Warren Beatty being like, why are you asking me these questions? I'm Dick Tracy. And uh, what is this interview for? I'm Dick Tracy, by the way. What the fuck are you doing, old man? Who said you should do this? He it's good that he made rules don't apply, because without that, that may very well have been his final, you know, moving (laughs) moving image work on this physical planet. (laughs) Like would have been that Tracy interview. Absolutely but, deranged junket interview. <laughs> I, I think some people would argue that like it should have been that rather than rules don't apply, but I'm not for this people. podcast, but maybe on another one, I will defend rules don't apply. Oh my 3,000 God. years later. No, I mean, we Dick Tracy deserves a reboot, but it just cannot happen until God. Warren Beatty is dead. And so... Like, let, me, let me just say it does not deserve a reboot. I don't well, not, I mean, to, not to disagree with you, and I very much respect your opinion, but I don't think it deserved a boot in the first place. Like, <laughs> let alone a fucking reboot. I don't know. I I love that film, and I love the uh, extremely fascistic comic strips. You know, I mean, there's something there, but of course. None what of these... I like about that, what I like about that film, is everything everybody but Warren Beatty is doing. Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, which is weird to say because he's directing it. But even as a director, I find it paced poorly. I find, uh, you know, I find out often it to be like oddly like blocked. But the oh, set design yeah. and the cinematography and the makeup effects are incredible. And Everything like, that Beatty contributes to the movie, both performance and director, are are not great. No, indeed. And I have here a um, making of Dick Tracy coffee table book, uh, which uh, there's one part where someone says, who is Warren Beatty? Well, if Hollywood is one big party, Warren is the music from the other room. You know, so this idea, this idea that Beatty somehow represents like... Uh, the triumph of the artistic individualistic spirit within the studio system, you know, Dick Tracy is not a good uh, proof of concept for that, but like the color, the production design, the tricking all of your best A-list celebrity friends into wearing these ridiculous costumes and then humiliating themselves while you look the same as you normally do, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot going on there. It's a rich, amazing <laughs> stuff. Yeah. I never um, heard it put that way, but if that's what the movie was for, that's it. the then then I agree with it. That's yeah, how I feel. I, <laughs> um, all right, so I think uh, I mean I think that about does I it for T two Judgment Day, right? I think we did it, Ricky. Steve, thanks so much for uh, for talking to us. How can people uh, check you out? Find your work? Oh, um, you know, Dimension underscore Tide on Tinder, uh, Twitter, Instagram. I think that's it, right? <laughs> Tinder, dude, I would love it if you were giving out your Tinder. That would be great. You can't share a, a Tinder publicly, right? But that would be amazing. Um, no, yeah, uh, elementxcinema.substack.com, you know, spectacletheater.com. You, you guys are going to edit this. Still do. I trust you. Okay.